Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. For apple lovers out there can relax. After a long wait, growers are now starting to pick the fruit. It will be appearing in supermarkets very soon. Popular varieties of apples have largely been absent from shops in recent weeks. Are growers still feeling the effects of Cyclone Gabrielle? Karen Morris is the Chief Executive of New Zealand Apple and Pear and joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Karen. Tell us what, well, what has been happening and what is happening now with the apple supply here. Well, it's it's very um, it's very exciting. We're starting harvest and we'll be hard out harvesting from February right through to April. So, certainly all of those varieties that kiwis love and cherish will be back on the shelves very soon, which is yeah, excellent news. What has been happening up until now? How disrupted was the uh, apple supply? Well, we certainly saw a dip. Um, I think, as most people have been aware, because of the outcomes of Cyclone Gabrielle going into the end of last year. Um, and there's always a bit of a natural lull, given the fact that we're just ending the, se- the, uh, the last season and going into the new one. Just remind us, I think it was, it's about 60% of the apples uh, come from Hawke's Bay and Gisborne region. How was the extent of the damage that growers suffered there? So in terms of Hawke's Bay and Tarafati, we had about 610 hectares of planted um, trees lost. So that's about 10%. Um, but certainly what we're looking at is a recovery phase to pre-cyclone levels. So we've still got a little way to go in terms of that. Um, but certainly the, the good news is that we've discovered that apple trees are exceptionally resilient, as are, as are our growers. So we're hoping that that bounce back is very good. Mm, it's remarkable we're getting any apples out of there when you saw some of the devastation. Absolutely. No, I must say the the, um, the growing conditions this year nationally have been fantastic. So we're certainly looking forward to an excellent crop. Um, and because of those growing conditions, it guarantees good taste, good colour, good crunch. Um, so I'm sure our kiwi, kiwi lovers of apples will be very happy. What are some of the varieties we should be looking out for? Because it is hard to pick a good apple in, in the supermarket sometimes without getting you know, overly manhandling them. Uh, so what are the good varieties coming out first? Our first first off the block will be Royal Galas, which is definitely a Kiwi favourite. So yeah, February we'll be seeing those flooding into the shelves. So it won't be empty for too much longer. And good prices? Can we expect good prices? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's a discussion for the the supermarkets and the growers to have. But yeah, absolutely, they're always exceptionally good value for a really nutritious product. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Karen Morish, Chief Executive of New Zealand Apple and Pear. Uh, after, well, fighting back from the effects of Cyclone Gabrielle, apples soon to be back on our supermarket shelves. Well, three people have been killed in a ski helicopter crash in a remote area of Canada. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police in West Central British Columbia said seven people were aboard the helicopter with four others left badly hurt. The helicopter was carrying a group of skiers on Monday and went down near the town of Terrace, about 110 kilometres from the Alaskan border. A New Zealander is understood to be among the injured survivors. Joining us from Vancouver is CBC's Mira Baines, who's been on the ground in Terrace. Uh, good morning, Mira. This is a tragic uh, accident. Can you tell us, do we know what happened? 
Yes. Uh, so the owner of the company, uh, Northern Escapes Heliskiing, uh, did hold a news conference. And that's it, that's pretty unusual in incidents like this. We've had other heliskiing deaths as well in British Columbia. But um, but John Forrest, he's been a guide himself uh, for 40 years. And he opened this company about 20 years ago with four of his friends. And so he held this news conference and he went through what had happened. He said that there were three helicopters that were in the air carrying uh, skiers. And uh, this was in the Skeena Mountains. And um, as you mentioned, this is north of Terrace in a very remote area. And what happened was all of a sudden they received a distress call from one of their radios. So the company gives people uh, who are skiers with them and the guides and everyone involved for safety reasons a radio um, because up there you don't get uh, really good uh, self-service. So if somebody's in trouble, they can radio on that. So they, all of a the sudden they received a, a radio call and it was from one of the skiers on the, the helicopter that had crashed. And so um, that's how they knew that the chopper crashed. And then the other helicopters in the area uh, were able to, to identify the region. And then they called in search and rescue. There was, a, there was a huge emergency response. There were three air ambulances, five ground ambulances uh, that were in the area. And this happened, uh, John Forrest uh, said, that it happened about 2,000 meters uh, above. So up in the mountains, he said, basically, the helicopter crashed into the side of the mountain. Uh, and so three people we know have died and four people have been injured, two in serious condition and two critically injured. Do we know anything uh, about those who have died and who are injured? Has there been any details provided? Yeah, some of those details are trickling in, and a lot of those uh, details are coming in from Italian media. Uh, CBC News, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here, we are able through the the companies uh, that these individuals were with uh, to sort of identify uh, a couple of the people. Um, So I I can tell you that Heiner Oberach Jr. is one of them. He's 31 years old. He has uh, regrettably uh, passed away. And the other fatality is... Andreas Vidman. They're both Italian citizens, and uh, Heiner Oberach Jr., um, he, he was with uh, Sportler. His father founded the company, uh, and we believe that his uh, brother, other brother was on board as well and was the one that actually uh, radioed in for help. And Andreas Vidman, he also worked for a, a sportswear company as well. And so right now, we don't know uh, the name and the origin of the helicopter pilot, as well as the um, as the guide that was that was on board as well. Um, there are a, a few other names that a company in Italy has identified for us, and uh, that was J- Jacob Oberach, which I mentioned is the, is the brother of one of the deceased, and Johannes Peer and Emilio Zirok. No, no word on survivors. Uh, as I say, there have been media reports in New Zealand suggesting that a New Zealander may have been on board, but uh, that still hasn't come through yet. No, that hasn't come through yet. So, yeah, there were four survivors. They've been taken to hospitals here, down here. I'm in the Vancouver area. I flew back last night. Um, so uh, the four survivors 
are here in the lower mainland in the Vancouver area because they required higher levels of care. But we haven't gotten information or confirmation about the the pilot and the mountain guide. Um, I did ask during the news conference, um, you know, exactly where they were from. The helicopter is actually contracted out from a company based in Kelowna um, in the Okanagan, that sort of wine country in British Columbia, more sort of central. And so the helicopter pilots are usually from that area. And so that's what the... Um, that's what the that's what the owner of the company had told me. Um, so there are questions about you know the mountain guide as well, or where that that person was from. So very unclear right now. Sure. Hey, thank you very much for that update. That is uh, CBC's Mira Baines uh, from Vancouver. Uh, just on that uh, helicopter crash, we'll bring any more details uh, on that so with reports that a New Zealander may have been one of those, uh, or is understood to be among the injured survivors from that ski helicopter crash. Well, New Zealand nurses are calling for an immediate and lasting ceasefire in Gaza, with concerns about reports that hospitals and health workers in the territory are being targeted. Sean Casey from the World Health Organization says healthcare workers in Gaza are fearing for their life just going to work. There are hospitals that have been directly hit by fire, uh, by small arms fire or, or larger uh, munitions. And in several cases, those teams, one of them, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, uh, announced that they left Al-Aqsa Hospital just over a week ago uh, because of insecurity in the area and evacuation orders. And so when health workers can't be safe, they can't operate. And, and even the local healthcare workers who haven't fled South Tarafa said to me several times that they're living in the hospital because they can't move safely between their home and the hospital across the road because they, they're worried that they might be killed along the way. So without safety, health workers can't get to where they need to be. That was Sean Casey from the World Health Organization. Well, the nurses' organization Kaifakahairi Kiri Nuku says health staff are protected under international humanitarian laws against such action. And she joins us now. Uh, kia ora, good morning, Kerry. Tell me, what are your concerns here uh, well, for health workers in particular in this conflict? Uh, kia ora. Well, it's really clear. We stand in solidarity with our healthcare workers and they must be kept safe to be able to deliver the care that they need. You know, instinctively, our job is to care and protect. It's really difficult to do when our lives, personal lives, are under threat. This is just not acceptable. It's appalling. We have had New Zealand nurses, you know, internationally across working in different war zones, and there are rules, aren't there, about the protection of those health workers. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, there is an international humanitarian law based on the Geneva Convention which considers hospitals um, like civilians and so by de facto those healthcare workers that work within hospitals should be protected. Now clearly with this ongoing bombardment it's, it's not, hospitals are not safe but also the extreme restriction and um, lack of medical supplies the relentless bombardment, the extreme trauma that nurses and doctors must be facing each day on whose lives to save and who they can't save because of the lack of supplies. It places everybody in a difficult and traumatic situation, but there should be protection under the international human um, laws. So what are you calling for here? What would you like to see from our government? We're, uh, we're calling for action. 
you know, what we're calling on is an enduring and immediate ceasefire in Gaza and the Israeli to prevent further civilian deaths and allow healthcare workers unrestricted access to provide life-saving medical care, access to medical care and water, the basic supplies that any healthcare worker would need to be able to deliver and support these very injured um, children and civilians. Are you in contact with with health workers uh, in Gaza? I mean, I imagine there's a, a sort of kinship between health workers. That's right. So through our national um, international organisation, the um, International Council of Nurses, they're directly in contact with them. But bear in mind that these are really extreme and difficult situations to maintain contact. Um, but certainly there are links through our international uh, affiliation. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That was uh, Kiri Nuku, the nurses' organisation, Kai Whakahaere. Heritage advocates say they're seeing the most significant threat to Dunedin's old homes and other buildings in decades. Meanwhile, momentum is growing in the business community to invest in the historic places and give them a new life. Anna Sargent reports. The chair of the Southern Heritage Trust, Joe Gaylor, says there's more pre-1900 houses in Dunedin than in any other city in New Zealand. But she's worried about how much longer they'll be here. She says many haven't been properly kept up and have had to be demolished. In the last month, we've lost a row of 1860s houses from Princess Street, which is one of our two main streets in Dunedin. And then we have at least 7 to 10 other prime downtown Dunedin buildings currently sitting empty and neglected. Joe Gaylor says the Dunedin City Council is not protecting the city's heritage. She says district planning laws are encouraging developers to eye up the historic sites to build on. Sadly, most of our heritage actually sits within that planning jurisdiction of intensification. So that makes it very appealing when a big property comes up for a property developer to think, well, I can maximise profits here now. So it's a complete and utter um, travesty. Joe Gaylor is particularly worried about a demolition application hanging over a 103-year-old house on Stewart Street. Consent is being sought to replace the house and a protected lime tree with a multi-storey apartment complex. The applicant declined to comment when approached by RNZ. Council has received 90 public submissions, almost all opposing the application. Structural engineer Stephen McKnight has been restoring heritage buildings for about 25 years. He says Dunedin hasn't had the redevelopment pressure felt in other cities until relatively recently. Stephen McKnight says there's more commercial pressure on some of the bigger, older houses now as people become interested in inner-city developments. He says he loves the history of the buildings and the fact they've had so many lives. It gives a whole sort of link to back to our ancestors and the history of the city and it you know, kind of grounds a place having, having those historic buildings still not only there, but used for contemporary use, you know, they're, they're, they're a living, vibrant part of our city, not museum pieces. And I think that's pretty important.
Business South Chief Executive Mike Collins believes investing in heritage buildings is the way forward. He says the character and history of them can be strong selling points. Um, there's a lot of businesses that have invested in really making sure that those heritage buildings are converted really professionally. And um, in doing that, they're kind of trying to keep the story of, of the history through the buildings. And even though there's really innovative businesses going in there about the future, it's quite neat that they're you know, really holding on to those stories from the past. Mike Collins says at a workshop today on opportunities for the city, the business community will be toured around some of the heritage buildings that have been redeveloped, such as the Garrison Hall. The Southern Heritage Trust's Joe Gaylor wants the council to increase its district plan protections for heritage buildings and mark non-heritage areas in the city where development to cater to housing needs can safely take place. The Dunedin City Council has been approached for comment. That was Anna Sargent with that report. Well, more than 1,400 new house consents have been granted in floodplains in Auckland since devastating flooding damaged thousands of homes a year ago. The number has been released just days before the council launches a Be Prepared campaign, encouraging Auckland residents to prepare for and protect their homes from future flooding. In-depth reporter Kate Newton reports. Like many cities, parts of Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland are prone to flooding during storms. Water levels can rise rapidly and unexpectedly during a storm event. The message in Auckland Council's new flood safety video is a lesson many Aucklanders learned the hard way a year ago, when unprecedented rain created havoc in Aotearoa's largest city. Four people died, motorways flooded and thousands of homes were damaged or destroyed. But Lyle Carter, who chairs the community group West Aucklanders Flooding, says he's seen new houses go up in Henderson in the last few months on land that was badly flooded. Surely they'd just go, right, OK, we know, we, we know the areas that were flooded. They know the areas that were flooded. Surely they would then go and go, hey, why don't we just put a stop on building in these areas? Elin Noy, the Economics of Disasters and Climate Change Chair at Victoria University, says allowing more houses to be built in floodplains isn't smart policy. It doesn't make any, any sense to allow these concerns. And now, with almost 100% certainty that sometime in the future, and probably not in the very distant future, the government will have to buy these properties back. Auckland Councillor Richard Hills, who chairs the Council's Planning, Environments and Parks Committee, says under the current Resource Management Act, there's little that councils can do to stop homes being built in floodplains. Essentially when consent holders can prove through their engineers or lawyers or whoever that they can mitigate the risk and they believe that you know lifting the floor level or only putting structures that won't have people living, sleeping, you know, so garages or basements or storage, you know, and that's a level of risk they're willing to take, then those things will get consent. Richard Hills says that since last year's floods, the council's been taking a second look at some greenfield sites, but rezoning them will be a lengthy and controversial process. The council's director of regulatory services, Craig Hobbs, says most of the 7,000 houses assessed by the council after the floods were older properties. Of those, only only a hundred that were impacted had uh, had received the building consent since 2016, so since the unitary plan came into place, which suggests that the conditions that we impose on those um, consents have actually worked. 
Illinois says the replacement law wasn't perfect, but is still better than the RMA. I appreciate the fact that different, different governments have different approaches and different ideologies. But I don't think you repeat something before you have something to replace it. At this point, what is replacing it is something that everybody acknowledged was not working. So if the new government has a different system that they think is better than the system proposed by the previous government, then by all means implement it. In a written statement, Climate Change Minister Simon Watts says the Ministry for the Environment recently consulted on a national policy statement on natural hazard decision-making, which was drafted by the previous government. Mr Watts says he looks forward to receiving officials' analysis of submissions in the next few weeks. That was in-depth reporter Kate Newton, and we will be speaking to uh, Auckland Councillor Richard Hills about this issue after 8 o'clock this morning. Investigators will be poring over a ship that ran aground and was stranded on the rocks in Doubtful Sound on Wednesday evening. The vessel, called the Fiordland Navigator, had 57 passengers and 10 crew on board at the time. All passengers were evacuated and one had minor injuries. The Transport and uh, Accident Investigation Commission says the boat's hull was breached and it took on water, but it was refloated later that night and returned to its berth at Deep Cove. We're joined by the Chief Investigator of Accidents, uh, Naveen uh, Kozupakalam. Uh, Naveen, good morning. Thanks for joining us. This was a serious... No one was injured, uh, but, well, well, one minor injury. Thankfully, nobody was seriously injured. But this was a serious incident? Uh, kia ora, Corin. Um, uh, yes, that's correct. Um, the vessel um, grounded. Groundings are considered serious instance because it can damage uh, the structural of damage the hull and create um, a, a loss of structural integrity uh, for the vessel um, which which can um, potentially result in sinking and capsizing the vessels now this happened in the about six feet at 6 p.m in the evening it was an overnight cruise wasn't it so that also would have potentially complicated matters if it had been dark that, that's right, and those are all uh, aspects that um, the Commission will be looking into um, when it tries to understand the circumstances of the accident. Have there been any other issues with this ship before? Um, look, the Commission um, conducted a previous investigation uh, involving this vessel back in 2006, um, but it's too early to draw any um, conclusions on whether um, the circumstances of that accident has any similarities with the, the current um, event. Do we have any early indications as to what went wrong here? Have there been any other sort of uh, incidents with other companies, with other ships, where they can get grounded like this? Um, look, Grounding is a serious um, maritime event. Um, and there are um, a number of cases um, where we've looked into, into grounding events across New Zealand. Um, but um, it, the, the Commission's investigation um, should uh, draw uh, into any particular lines of, of inquiry that has you know, a systemic um, um, issue that we might under, you know um, identify. So, but at this stage, it's just too early, um, Corin, to comment um, on on any of that. Where, will weather play a part? What, do we have uh, you know indications as to whether the weather was any influence on what happened here? Um, uh, look, at this stage, we know that the vessel um, grounded um, um, in Doubtful Sound. Um, the 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 
the circumstances are quite scanty. Um, the, um, what we do know, though, is that the evacuation was quite successful. So once the vessel grounded, the crew responded well and the passengers were safely evacuated. So that was a good outcome. But um, the, the investigators on site will obviously be surveying the vessel, um, trying to interview passengers. So all of uh, you know, those, those sorts of information would probably be drawn out from, from the interviews that the, um, the investigators conduct. Mm. Naveen, thank you very much for that. That is Naveen Kozupakalam, the Chief Investigator of Accidents at the Transport Accident Investigation Commission. Public health experts say it is almost certain that New Zealand will have a significant measles outbreak this year and it could be fatal. Britain has had hundreds of cases since October and there's been a 45-fold increase in cases in Europe in the past year. Cases are growing globally. With more people travelling overseas, it is likely too many infections will come across our border to contain. Health correspondent Rowan Quinn reports. New Zealand's already had several brushes with measles in the past few months. So far, they've been contained. But the clinical director of Te Akafaiora, the Māori Health Authority, Rawari McCree-Jansen, says that good fortune's unlikely to continue. I think every public health physician, every population health expert that I know agrees that it's almost certain we're going to get cases across the border and given our low immunisation rates, we're at really high risk of having an outbreak. Epidemiologist Michael Baker says there could be several outbreaks, including a significant one like in 2019, where there were more than 2,000 cases. I think it's almost certain, unless we can rapidly raise vaccine coverage, because the problem with measles is that it's so infectious, you need very high coverage with not too many gaps in a population if you want to stop outbreaks. The 2019 outbreak likely spread to Samoa, where 83 people died, many of them children. Hundreds were hospitalised here, but none died. Dr McCree Jansen worries because childhood vaccinations have declined since then and the disease is particularly dangerous for under fives. No expert I know says we're going to get through the next outbreak without uh, seeing some tragic deaths of babies. About 95% of people need to be immune to achieve herd immunity. Ministry of Health figures show just 83% of two-year-olds are up to date with their vaccines, which include measles. For Tamariki Māori, the rate is 70%. There's also an immunity gap among tens of thousands of young adults, many who missed out because of communication problems when their vaccine was due. Professor Baker says the two-dose vaccine is very effective. Whereas with measles, it's the dream vaccine in that uh, it gives you near lifetime protection uh, for all varieties of measles. Measles doesn't have a lot of variation and doesn't evolve very rapidly. And also it stops you transmitting it to other people. Dr Jansen says the health system has consistently underperformed when it comes to delivering childhood vaccinations to Māori children. My message for the health system is let's devote our energies consistently and deliberately to actually achieve really great immunisation protection for our community. And he has a message for all parents to check their children are up to date with their immunisations for measles and other infectious diseases. He says Te Akafaiora is working with Māori health providers to boost rates. 
Tifatu Ora Healthy NZ says it has a national response plan ready to go. It mobilised its incident response teams six times because of cases last year, including one that kept an outbreak to six. That was our health correspondent Rowan Quinn reporting there on what public health experts say uh, is an almost certain measles outbreak in New Zealand. Well, public health campaigners want the Associate Health Minister stripped of her portfolio after revelations she's investigating freezing increases to tobacco tax. Casey Costello asked the Ministry of Health for advice on a three-year freeze on inflation-related tax increases for smoked tobacco products. We're joined now by Leitu Tufonga, spokesperson for the Māori Public Health Group, Hapu, Hapai sorry, Te Haura. Uh, kia ora, good morning, Leitu. Tell me, oh. wh- why do you want Casey Costello stripped of her associate health portfolio? Oh, morena. Um, well, there is questions around her links to um, the taxpayers' union as well as um, direct links to um, the tobacco industry. So, you know, we need someone... OK, OK, let's, who... let's, um, let's just address the, the, the facts around that. So she has worked for the taxpayers' union in the past, which received some funding from the tobacco industry. And uh, we do know that some New Zealand First staffers uh, are working in the industry too. I see uh, Shane Jones uh, has called uh, that person in particular a long-term associate and friend. So just to clarify uh, those suggestions that you are, are raising, um, yeah, just for clarity. Sorry, carry on. Mm. Yeah, we need someone with credibility and someone who can look at the evidence with um, objectively. So it's really important that, you know, over the number of months um, since the government has come through, they have announced that they will be repealing um, the smoke-free legislation. We need someone there with bold leadership. There's a big goal to be smoke-free by 2025, um, and there is a target uh, for our population, you know, to reach that five percent target of just having five percent of our people smoking. So. When you have someone who has that background, it makes you question, um, will they be looking at all of the evidence objectively and doing as much as they can to support, particularly Māori who have the highest um, smoking prevalence, um, and to do that at the best, um, yeah, for the best okay. of all of New Zealanders. Okay, now Casey Costello denies any links or any, um, that she is being swayed by the tobacco industry and says she is, this is an evidence gathering, an information gathering exercise. Her point is that for some, uh, the price is not a deterrent. And so alternative products would be a better option for those low-income people who are highly addicted to nicotine and who are being targeted mm. or unfairly targeted by price increases. So what would you say to that? What I would say to that is that we haven't implemented this world-leading legislation, which is fantastic, which has three measures and was aiming to do three things. Reduce um reduce uh, the product of tobacco sold in our communities, which is what our communities have been wanting. And that's looking at 6,000 outlets to 600. Then it was also looking at um, ensuring that we've reduced the nicotine in smoked tobacco so that it would support more people to quit because they wouldn't get that hit. And then the third thing was introducing a smoke-free legis- um, a smoke-free um, generation policy. So that was looking at um, ensuring that 
those who were born after 2009 would not be legally sold tobacco. So they haven't actually exercised this. And no, and it's government policy now, not it's government policy now. Sorry to interrupt, but just confirming what the uh, the criticism you're post uh, putting towards Casey Costello as opposed to actual government policy now, and those policies have been abandoned by this government. So, what is it in particular uh, that you would like to see? that you were criticising Casey Costello for beyond that? I, I guess it was around the... So the exercise tax that she has been um, investigating on the smokeless um, tobacco products, that is still harmful. Um, so uh, there is not... There isn't great evidence around that being a quit tool. What, what is good evidence around being a quit tool is what we currently have at the moment. And so that is all of the spray, the nicotine patches. Yes, vaping does play a part in it, but it's just an, it's part of the buffet of um, tools for people to quit. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Leitu Tufonga, spokesperson for the Māori Public Health Group, Hapai Te Haora. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 